Welcome to the Science of Sports Recovery Podcast. I'm your host, Jace Kraft, and today I am introducing you to Dr. Kyle Levers. Dr. Levers' professional career prior to academia was grounded in athletic performance development at the D1 collegiate level and in the private sector. After obtaining his doctorate degree, Dr. Levers founded a strength and conditioning facility in New Jersey, where he served as the director of athletic performance and nutrition. In addition, Dr. Levers co-founded a startup wearable technology company to improve blood pressure monitoring during exercise. He has published several articles and co-authored two book chapters related to the influences of nutrition and supplementation on exercise, performance, and body composition. Now, Dr. Levers is an assistant professor in the Department of Exercise and Nutrition Sciences and serves as the Director of Metabolism and Exercise Testing Research Services in Academic Laboratories on GW's main campus in Foggy Bottom. Today, we're going to talk about uh, nutrition and athletics and what it truly means to be healthy as an athlete, as well as how to talk to your athletes about weight and weight management. Let's get into it. You're listening to the Science of Sports Recovery Podcast. Each week, we explore how to recover more efficiently from training so you can work out harder and realize your full potential. This is the Science of Sports Recovery Podcast. Hey, Kyle, it's great to have you on the show. All right, Jace, thanks so much for having me on. I'm really excited to be able to talk to you today. Awesome. And I'm, I'm really pumped to get into, like, what does health mean for an athlete? Uh, you know, even from the average person to an athlete, I think health is um, perceived differently. And I'm definitely excited to get into that. But I always like to ask about the athlete behind the professional, because anybody in the sports world uh, when they're working with athletes they were an athlete at one point so what was that sport for you Kyle what was the beginning you know four or five six year old Kyle what were you playing yeah the youth the youth athlete Kyle was was soccer baseball and basketball and that interestingly enough changed over the course of time Mm -hmm. and so I, I progressed Away from I, I, soccer was has been my passion my entire life. I still carry through that today, mm. but I sort of morphed the other two. And in high school, I went from basketball and baseball and transitioned to wrestling. Okay, and so did the soccer wrestling split in high school, which was not that common. Yeah, and then uh, progressing into college, I moved away from wrestling. Was recruited for soccer, played soccer, and then picked up track and field. Okay. Ironically enough. So, uh, and, and played a sport year round at the college level. What uh, level of of school was that at or what school was it? That was McDaniel college. It's a small little uh, liberal arts school in, in Maryland. Okay. Like division one, two, division three, three. division three. three. Okay, cool. What was the transition like from soccer to track and field? Was it pretty, seamless and were you still playing soccer then in the fall and then track and field in the spring so yeah i did soccer in the fall track and field in the winter for indoor track and then outdoor track and field in the spring so throughout the whole year you know what the transition was pretty unique i actually had okay uh, my my second coach in college which i think you'll appreciate my second coach in college soccer coach in college uh was not too happy that I was playing or, or, or participating in track and field in the spring yeah. when you have their non-traditional soccer season. Right. Yeah. And so for two, the last two years of my collegiate career, uh, I did both in the spring um, okay. as much as I could, <laughs> which, which is absolutely crazy. You know, yeah. was doing spring soccer a few days a week and then doing track and field when I could. Yeah. And then do, obviously doing the event, the the meets and the events as well. So that, sure. that was a crazy time. I would not recommend that for anybody. I'm sure we're going to talk about that in our conversation about health today. Yeah. <laughs> so you were, um, if I'm not mistaken, you were a sprinter, which makes sense from a soccer uh, to a sprinter. But I also 
um, have a feeling you were a javelin thrower as well, is what I've heard. Um, That doesn't really make sense for a soccer player, I feel. (laughs) Yeah, and and this is interesting because, you know, the reason I got involved in track and field, I probably should have done it in high school, to be Mm -hmm. honest with you. But again, another thing that we're going to talk about today is, you know, the whole Soccer was my life for a long time, played it year round as a youth uh, and through high school and whatnot. Didn't have time for many other sports. I regret that now, but yeah, uh, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. But when I got to college, I felt like I wanted to do something else. And I just happened to room with a cross country and distance runner my first two years of college. Okay. And saw them in the winter and the spring doing track and field. And he kind of sucked me into that uh, as well as a, a, gentleman across the hall who was a senior at the time when I was a freshman okay. who was their resident assistant and he was a a decathlete okay and he took me out a couple of times when he was practicing the javelin my freshman year and, yeah. and showed me some things I got hooked instantaneously I just yeah. kind of fell into it and honestly just decided my sophomore year you know what I'm going to do track and field and away we went the luxuries of division three and and thankfully, you know, being fast enough to be able to, to compete at that level. But, yeah. but Javin was an interesting journey. I can certainly tell you that it was a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm sure there was like a huge learning curve just in technique and everything. Massive <laughs> learning curve. Yeah. Cool. So uh, through your obviously sporting career, um, you know, you didn't pursue any, any athletics, uh, professionally or anything like that after college, but um, you did get into the sport world as a professional, starting with like the human human movement um, seems to appeal to you. Why is that? Yeah, and you know that's interesting that transition. And to be honest with you, it didn't. The human movement interest hasn't is more of a recent thing for me. Okay, uh, when you look at my athletic career and mm-hmm. you know. I got interested in it most of the, mostly from my background in, in sports performance, strength and conditioning. And okay. you start seeing, you know, when I was, was getting out of my undergraduate program, you know, this is gosh, 2008, 2009, this, the human movement sort of mantra and, and a lot of the curricula that are out there wasn't there, right? Strength and conditioning was was barely a thing in terms of it was just getting into that explosion that happened within the last 10 years. Sure. And so you just started seeing scratching the surface of people like Greg Cook and Lee Burton, right. Coming out with functional movement systems. And mm-hmm. they actually developed that in the late nineties, but it really didn't come out um, very publicly until a lot later than that. So I kind of knew that sort of stuff had worked with a couple individuals who were doing functional movement screening, mm-hmm. but really didn't put the connection, the pieces together for myself personally until a lot later when I owned my own sports performance company uh, after I finished my PhD. Yeah. And I was lucky enough to work with a group, link up with a group of physical therapists at the time who we really collaborated well and, and started to show me the interconnection between physical therapy and, and strength and conditioning. And that was right around the time, to be honest with you, a lot of strength and conditioning coaches mm. were either former physical therapists yeah. or current physical therapists. And now you see a lot of, it's not uncommon now, but, yeah. but back then, even five years ago, six years ago, that was something that was a little bit less common. And so I was lucky enough to work with that group of PTs, two or three of them yeah. that really showed me, Hey, the benefits of functional movement. And then what really got me was how poor I moved. <laughs> right. Okay. You know, here, yeah. here's me as a collegiate athlete. I've played multiple sports over my life and it came to a point where I was like, wow, how can I, I've been training all my life. How can I possibly move this bad? Yeah. yeah. And so I started putting the pieces together and, and then I so started seeing it in my athletes and, and then mm-hmm. thinking about athletes that I worked with previously, I'm like, wow, there were some issues that we probably should have taken care of if I had known better. Yeah. Do you know who Kelly Starrett is? I do. Uh, yeah. yeah. So he, he's like, when you were describing the PT strength and conditioning, like I just, 
pictured him. He was on the podcast um, a few episodes ago. It's still in the runway. It hasn't been released as we're recording this, but um, I'll link to his episode in the show notes uh, if you want to check that out. But uh, I was in the same boat when I started this kind of journey of, of the podcasting where it's like, I knew about the body. I knew kind of the physiology of the body based on my exercise science degree. And I just assumed that I was a healthy individual um, because I ran a lot, you know? <laughs> and then uh, now I'm talking to a bunch of guys like you. They're like, well, can you move in this way? And I'm like, well, no, I can't, <laughs> not even close. <laughs> like, uh, and so it's interesting, um, the, the shift in mindset, once you understand what is kind of normal, what the human body should do, and then realize like, I've been so specialized for so long that I'm too far, too far gone this way because I didn't work on some things from that. So, um, so what, what was, what is your kind of journey in the human movement now like what are you up to now yeah so interestingly enough and my phd is in exercise physiology and i did a lot of work with sport nutrition and so my phd time was not spent in much in the human movement realm um, i i think i pull a lot of that from my time as a strength conditioning coach okay. and sports performance coach and so now back to being in academia, mm -hmm. where I was at my previous institution, uh, a former uh, colleague of mine and I, we started doing some research, very elementary observational research with a couple of the athletic teams. And it was at the division one level mm -hmm. and looking at their, their movement and how that corresponded to, um, gameplay, how that corresponded to stress. And we're sure. working on publications for those currently. And in fact, one of them just got accepted recently within the last week or so. So oh, that'll be awesome. the second one that we've put out. And we've had a couple of abstracts published with NSCA yeah. and things of that nature on this topic. And we have a few more to put out, but that's where I sort of started. And believe it or not, I've been able to link up personally with Gray Cook. And that really has expanded my ability to understand his system, mm -hmm. understand what, what he's, what he's getting at. And, yeah. and some of the things that they're looking at moving forward, things like their breathing screen, their self movement screens, things of that nature that they're working on and uh, developing, which is, which is really cool mm -hmm. stuff that's going to be starting to come out here shortly. And, also, I've been engaged in a lot of the individuals, people like Kelly Starrett, right? You know, I think we all had the supple leopard on our bookshelf back when it first came out. And Sweet. I remember having it. <laughs> and so there's been a lot that's expanded upon that since mm -hmm. then. And you know, one of my biggest investments right now in terms of time is, you know, I spend a lot of time taking a look at individuals that are posted on social media, follow people like uh, Andrea Spina, who's who's um, got the FRS, the uh, certification, and then you have um, you know Nadia Aguilar, who's also the the functional patterns individuals, and so those guys really are starting to talk about what I'm personally interested in is is looking at mm -hmm. human movement and how do we better facilitate moving as humans, right? Sure. And I think that's one thing that we miss. Yeah. And so that's where I'm at right now at GW. We're, we're attempting, obviously COVID has been a major issue with research, but yeah. I've shifted into the more tactical space now and we're, I'm going to be starting to work with our ROTC cadets and okay. looking at their, not only their health, but also mm -hmm. human movement quality. Sure. And that's, that's a major issue that they approached me, a couple of cadets approached me Okay, that were interested based on what I was talking about in class. Yeah. And so now I have a graduate student that's interested in sort of pursuing this. And so we're going to, we're going to take this on 
fingers crossed this semester. Yeah. And start looking at that just from an observational perspective and then figure out what we can okay. do from an intervention standpoint. Okay. Um, the, the research that was published this last week, is that um, public or where could somebody find that? Yeah, I can, I can forward you the link so you can link okay. it up uh, with yeah. this podcast. It's, it's in publication currently. So okay. it was accepted for publication, is in process currently. And as soon as it, it is formally published, I'll make sure to send that over to you. Okay. Cool. And I'll, I'll find also the other article that was already published. And that was, that was in collaboration with uh, my colleague, Dr. Troy Purdom. Okay. He's at a, he's at a North Carolina A&T. Cool. And just to be clear for the audience, what was the publication that, um, that you just got or is in publication right now? What research was that? So this is, this is on with our women's soccer athletes at my former institution. Okay. And we followed them for an entire calendar year. And we tested them on multiple physiological parameters, including human movement quality and neuromuscular control. Okay. And what that basically entailed was, gosh, we, we tested them on everything under the sun yeah. as an observational component. But what we were looking at specifically with them was Y balance, right? So very simple, multidirectional movement-based test. And also looking at... Uh, performance parameters. You know, we looked at power output. We looked okay. at um, aerobic capacity. We looked at body composition, things of that nature. So basically, what we did was we pieced some of that out and looked at relationships based on following them for an entire year. Okay. And that was that was a very interesting study because what we found, unfortunately, is that their training really never improved in the entire calendar cycle. They basically, when they started uh, immediately post-season of the, of the first year, mm -hmm. and then we followed them all the way through their spring training and then summer training and then through yeah. their competitive season, by the time that they got to, so let's just use months here for an example. So in, in basically January, when they start their spring season, we tested them. Okay. And from there all the way till April, right, is their spring season. And yeah. they actually had their highest performance and movement capability parameters in that April time point, right? Okay. They showed a massive amount of improvement. But by the time we got to August, right before they were supposed to start their competitive season, many of the parameters were not statistically different than they were in January. Mm. And to us, that's a major issue because if you're preparing for your competitive season yeah. and you're no different than when you start your off-season training, that's an issue. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of underlying things there that we could certainly go off on a tangent on, but yeah, there's a lot of things going on. But that's certainly not ideal. So when you when you say they didn't or they went back to their January parameters, are you just talking like their functional movement type screening test, or is that also you know, aerobic capacity, um, and, and strength and that kind of stuff too. Well, that's, that's mostly talking about their performance outcome variables, right? So looking at aerobic capacity, looking at anaerobic okay. power, looking at, uh, fatigue index, uh, looking at body composition. Okay. Uh, if you're looking at human movement, when we started teasing a lot of that stuff out and looking at, uh, right and left asymmetries. And what we were really linking that to was injury predisposition. Okay. Not incidents of injury, because that's not something we measured and you can't make that jump, but injury, injury, injury predisposition. Okay. And, and what is like, if you could give a two or three sentence on what injury predisposition is. Yeah. So injury predisposition is, is a greater likelihood that whatever parameter that we're seeing is going to potentially, or there's a higher potential that it's going to lead to injury. So for example, if you're looking at things like the Y balance test, which is, is something that's, that's fairly common in the functional mm -hmm. movement screen system is looking at right and left side discrepancies, looking at uh, discrepancies between 
different reaches. So for example, the wide balance you're reaching in three directions. Mm -hmm. And how does that compare in terms of right and left sides? How does that compare to the standard that you should be reaching on a given side, right? So there's really two ways to quote unquote fail the test. Yeah. Right. In that capacity. So, and then you can also look at a composite score. So there's a lot of things there that if you're seeing discrepancies in terms of right and left sides, what's going on there? That's the big question. It's not necessarily yeah. telling you that, but we're saying that there's something going on here that is asymmetrical. What is that? And then there's also something that's limiting your performance in a given direction. Why is that? And so that warrants usually further investigation, okay. uh, which we, we did not do, but it gives you an idea that, hey, something's not right here. And in fact, because something is not right, and in particular, when you compare it to the other side, that can be a, be a predisposition or that can facilitate injury if that imbalance is allowed to linger and, and not addressed, right? So if you think sure. about it, I always think about it as a car, right? If I have a car and, and uh, one of my tires is, I don't know, low, and I run on that low tire for yeah. miles and miles and miles and miles compared to the other tires that are functioning correctly, that presents an overall structural problem to a lot of the internal components of the suspension system. Yeah. So, so you have to compensate for whatever isn't working right. So, you know, to bring it back to the human body, if your left leg, there's some sort of, you know, uh, something not operating right on your left leg, then your right leg has to uh, adapt to that, which could cause injury and, and that kind of stuff. Right. And it could be, I mean, and you look at the whole kinetic chain, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it could be something that is going on in the hip structure that can impact ground reaction forces or ground contact or vice versa. It could be something that's perhaps more likely that if you're a running based athlete where ground contact is necessary with the legs and, and propulsion is necessary with the legs, mm -hmm. if, if your ground contact is sort of asymmetrical as you're, you know, as a runner, right? Yeah. If it's asymmetrical for miles and miles that could lead to impacts up to kinetic chain you know it could be hip issues it could be knee issues it could be yeah. lumbar spine pelvis shoulder yeah yeah so you mentioned something um that caught my attention you said you measure uh, you know the the movement patterns of people but also the neuromuscular function um what do you mean by that and how do you measure something like that so neuromuscular function is looking at a lot of, for us, it was a very simplistic component, which was okay. power output, right? So sure. a lot of the researchers in this space may balk at what we were doing because it was overly simplistic. To be honest with you, we didn't have the tools and instruments to be able to do something more comprehensive, but there's sure. a lot of research out there that is very comprehensive and mm -hmm. very involved. But our neuromuscular function was looking at power output, right? And okay. so how do we look at that? We looked at that principally through a vertical jump. We also looked at that through um, horizontal power output in, in the form of sprinting. Okay. Right? So looking at how that changed over the course of time, in this case, entire calendar year, in correlation with how how uh, asymmetries or things in terms of movement patterns change over the course of time mm -hmm. as well. So that then if you look at correlations like that, it can kind of give you an idea in some capacities, is it a, is it a neurological or neuromuscular control issue that's impacting an outcome performance? Okay. Or is it something that is more, you know, joint specific or movement sure. specific, right? So yeah. Yeah, there's really two things to look at there and, and being okay. conscious of what's going on. And not to get too far in, into the weeds of physiology, but if I'm if I'm not mistaken, um, you would like a high jump or a sprint test neurological um, muscular strength because you're able to 
um, fire more muscle fibers at one time with those activities. If you're able to jump higher or, or run faster, is, is that kind of the idea there? I think the idea simplistically is rate of force development. Oh, okay. Right? How, fast, how fast can you how fa- fire right, a muscle? How, exactly. How fast can you fire a motor unit, which then inevitably controls parts yeah. or, or whole muscles, right? And okay. so the faster that you can fire, uh, you know, develop force by firing that musculature, in theory, the more force that you're going to generate to be able to produce power, yeah. which is inevitably moving force, which is your body weight in this case, in those two testing situations. Sure. Okay. Cool. If you stick around and listen to enough of our episodes here on the Science of Sports Recovery podcast, you'll notice a common theme of importance of mobility in recovery and injury prevention. That's why I recommend checking out the Ready States Virtual Mobility Coach to help you improve your mobility, recoverability, and injury prevention. The Ready State is a brainchild of coach and athlete Dr. Kelly Starrett, who you can learn more about on episode 13. His Virtual Mobility Coach program helps athletes understand the importance of recovery, pain relief, and self-care. In other words, it helps fix the recovery side of training so you can keep seeing results from your workouts. His program will guide you through the same mobilizations used on athletes in the NFL, NHL, and MLB. Provide custom tools for pain relief, give you customized pre and post exercise mobilizations based on your training and sports schedule, and deliver daily mobilizations to keep you on track to achieve your goals. You put your heart and soul into your workouts. Make sure you get the most of them by going to thereadystate.com slash jace. Again, that's thereadystate.com slash J-A-S-E. The link will also be in the show notes. Now, back to the show. So brings us to the the meat of the conversation today. And I, I wanted to start with the question, um, you know, what does it mean to be healthy? Not as an athlete, not as a um, you know average Joe or somebody sitting on the couch, but just in general as a human, what does it mean to be a healthy human? Yeah, I think this is an interesting question because universally we're not healthy. Well, Americans generally are not healthy, but, um, you know, I think having a healthy body composition, that's obviously a big one, Mm -hmm. right? Healthy body, not falling in within healthy ranges, not necessarily looking absolutely, uh, jacked or ripped or, or whatever you want to say, but having a healthy body composition is key, making sure that you're getting adequate quantities of sleep, right? Uh, that's so sleep amount and also sleep quality is absolutely critical for health. Obviously for females having a regular menstrual cycle, right? And that's, that's critical. Um, mm-hmm. and that gives us sort of an insight in terms of what's going on hormonally for females. And that's, yeah. that's absolutely important. So, um, um, Actually, we'll come back to that. You're going to finish and then uh, I'm going to ask you more about that. Okay. Uh, Obviously nutrition, right? And and so we have this perspective of what healthy nutrition is, Mm -hmm. and that's going to be different for everybody. It's highly individualized, right? But making sure that you're fueling your body for the activities that you're doing. Yeah. Right. And you're fueling it properly. And we we can talk about that more, but that's, that's certainly uh, a component. And then human movement. Do you move well? Right. And I know there's a couple of professionals out there, people like Gray Cook, that would push for human movement as a health marker. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't move well, you how can you possibly be healthy? Yeah. Um, if if things don't if things don't function the you know, joints don't function the, the way that they should. And that's yeah. that's a major that's a major component. And uh, I think lastly is your mental your mental state. Mm-hmm. right? Mental cognition, emotional cognition, emotional and mental maturity. Yeah. Um, that That's something that's certainly necessary as well for all of us. Yeah. So you mentioned six, six markers, um, me being body composition, sleep, 
a menstrual cycle if you're a woman, so five or six, uh, nutrition, movement, quality, and then mental um, health. And I, I think out of all of those, there's, as an athlete, it like sleep, okay, we understand we need sleep. Nutrition, generally, if you're serious about your sport, you take your nutrition seriously. Um, and body composition, tend not to have to worry about that except on some um, extreme cases. But I think some that get maybe pushed to the side, especially in the female sports, is the menstrual cycle. And I mean, you hear stories all the time about women not uh, going through long periods of time, not having a cycle, um, especially in like professional sports when they're really pushing their bodies to the limit on training and, and that kind of stuff. Why? Like, obviously it's a natural body function, but why is it so important for women to have that cycle in their body? Well, it demonstrates that there's a regular hormonal um, activity going on. And that's absolutely key. And there's actually a group out there now, I've been sort of consulting with them off and on, uh, called Wild AI. And it's, okay. I'm trying to remember the, na- the, the woman who's the CEO, but it's so interesting to, in this capacity, she's an endurance athlete. And it was so interesting to her that there's so many female athletes out there. And I'm sure as a, as a running athlete, such as yourself, you've seen female counterparts who run into that in this, in that particular sport is pretty frequent, yeah, but 100%. Uh, yeah, endurance athletes. And so she's developed a, basically a program where women can start understanding not only how they can monitor their menstrual cycle, how their menstrual cycle should be normal and can be normal when you're a competitive athlete. But in addition to that, how can you train such to take advantage of different periods throughout Mm -hmm. your menstrual cycle? Right. And so it's becoming that important where the hormonal cycles that are going on within the body that impact uh, not only performance itself, yeah. but stress, uh, also the way, excuse me, the body recovers and how fast it's going to recover. Things of that nature is, yeah. is absolutely critical for, for the female athletes. And if you don't have that, all the things that it can be connected to and, and some great examples that it can be connected to if you don't have proper menstrual function, typically um, you start seeing some issues with stress fractures, particularly in endurance-based athletes. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I've had some graduate assistants that have, that were collegiate track athletes that ran into those issues, um, due to, you know, uh, eating disorders and, and other things that just lack of knowledge. And, yeah. and unfortunately, um, things like that can happen. So, and you said that was wild AI, wild dot AI. AI. Okay. Yeah. Um, so d- how familiar are you with like the different stages of the menstrual cycle and how that would affect training? Could you walk um, the listeners through that? If, if you're a guy, then you could probably fast forward, but um, I think it'd be valuable for females. Yeah. And to, and to be honest with you, you know, it's not completely my area of expertise sure. um, in terms of, of that training cycle, but that, that resource would be, absolutely, uh, invaluable mm, to so yeah. many female athletes, um, to be able to more specifically hone in on that. And, and yeah. to be honest with you, it, again, it is highly individualized, but you sure. know, there are some benefits and we deal a lot. We deal with it more from a body composition standpoint. And okay. so what we're seeing with a lot of female athletes is not understanding the bottom limit of what's critical for body composition and that mm-hmm. there is some essential fat that is necessary um, to maintain in order to maintain your menstrual cycle. Now, is there a specific cutoff? No, there's really not. It, mm-hmm. It's highly individualized, but understanding what, that's why I was saying earlier about healthy body compositions, that yeah. getting, getting way too low 
in terms of a body fat percentage specifically yeah. is going to have a major impact on, on those hormonal changes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's, that obviously comes with a lot of, a lot of training and certainly a lot of endurance athletes is, is a primary focus there. Yeah. And it, that's a good point with the body composition, you know, generally athletes are like, well, I you know, I have a body of an athlete. I'm good. But, um, there tends to be the outliers where you push so hard in your sport, whether it be you're a distance runner and you have to get as light as possible or think you have to get as light as possible, or, you know, your alignment on the football team and just need to, you know, be a wall so people can't get through you, you know, there's very different body composition. So how do you like wrestle with that as an athlete to say, I need to perform at my best, you know, so there's these pressures on me to be light or to be, you know, on on the heavy side, but maybe long-term health, that's not, you know, good for you as a person, is there a way to stay healthy and still have the same level of performance that you would, um, you know, go into these extremes? Yeah. I mean, I think that's interesting. And so in, in a lot of cases, a lot of it is, is having conversations with individuals and, and hopefully trying to figure out where their perception of this comes from, because I could sit there all day long and say, Hey, you don't, your body composition is, is far too low Mm. and getting it to the point where you're lacking some essential fat that you need is, you know, talking mostly to females, but even males, you can get far, far too low. I, um, you don't know my whole story, but that was part of my story was I was way too low. And in fact, we had one of my exercise science courses, we did a, like a body, um, skin fold and stuff. And I was like, um, you know, just under 3% or right around there. I was like, my professor was like, that's not good. <laughs> I was like, hey, you know, but as a distance runner, you, you kind of like get proud of that. Like you get like, yeah, there, I have no fat on me. You know, I'm all muscle or all bone and muscle and, and stuff. This, you know, so I had that perception until it started biting me in the butt. Um, with all these other things that happened in my career but um so how do like you were you were about to get into how do you talk to athletes about this i mean i'm really curious about what you're gonna say yeah so talking to and this is a very difficult subject particularly going you know as from to males talking to females or, or females talking to males, but mostly males talking to females is, and talking to females about this type of subject is, is a very sensitive subject and, and really allowing them to understand what they need to perform well. And a lot of times using role models uh, can be a way, but okay. understanding the foundation in terms of why body fat is necessary to maintain health, right? It's not just an energy substrate, but it's something that from a, a health standpoint is absolutely critical. And we know that that fat tissue is part of the endocrine or hormonal system as well. Mm-hmm. So it provides even benefits that we're not completely sure of at this point um, to facilitate proper uh, hormonal development, proper hormonal generation, things of that nature. So it's yeah. absolutely key from that perspective, but going back to your question earlier, oh, lighter is better, right? For endurance-based athletes. And that's not always necessarily the case. Yes, do we want to be lean and efficient? Absolutely. But being so low that we are, you know, sort of infringing on critical tissue mm-hmm. is is not advisable in that particular capacity. And then so what does that come back to? A lot of that comes back to, okay, let's look at your fueling strategies, right? What are you, what are you doing from that capacity? So would having additional muscle mass, slight muscle mass benefit you there? Would it benefit you from an injury prevention standpoint Mm -hmm. to, um, carry slight additional mass 
um, from a body composition standpoint. But a lot of times it's, it's very hard though. Perhaps the hardest part of being a physiologist is you get bombarded with a lot of these other individuals out there in the field who present a lot of things on anecdotal evidence. And so it, again, that's what I was going back to yeah. is if you're talking to an athlete, where does this perception come from? Mm-hmm. And sometimes you also have to talk to the coaching staff as well and try to, to break that mindset. And the same thing, like you were saying before for large humans, right. Thinking football players yeah. specifically, um, and just having coaches or, or other training individuals telling athletes, you got to get larger and not understanding how to do that properly. It's not just consuming mass quantities of, of calories either. And so again, you want to be the, for an endurance athlete wants to be the most efficient possible, but even a power athlete wants to be the most efficient possible. Again, Mm -hmm. we talked about rate of force production earlier, Yeah, right? You want to be able to utilize muscle mass to power things as efficiently and as quickly as possible. And for an endurance athlete, you require to do that over a, a long period of time. Uh, whereas a power athlete's not, but they're required to do things more in an instantaneous fashion. Yeah. So, um, you know, that really kind of rings true with why body composition is an important thing, but it's something that is, you know, sort of difficult to talk about, but there's a good reason why a lot of my registered dietitian friends and former colleagues who now work with athletes at the collegiate or professional level, they're doing body composition constantly from a health standpoint, from a performance standpoint, very interested in in how things change over the course of the training cycle. You mentioned that athletes take like anecdotal evidence and like as their science. Um, and we see that a lot, especially in like marketing of products and, and that kind of stuff. And for anybody listening that doesn't know what anecdotal means, it's basically one person's story. Um, and they're saying that that because I took this energy drink or whatever, and then I performed X that it, it works. And that's not always the case, obviously, but it comes to an issue that I've seen just with this podcast here, exploring these different scientific, um, you know, modalities and, and tools and um, ways of, of doing things that have worked for some people, you know, and then as you get 10 years, you know, eight years into it, then, okay, now the science is in that this works or this doesn't, you know, but there's so many things getting thrown at athletes these days, whether it be the new, you know, energy drink or the new um, system of stretching or the new recovery tool and, and that kind of stuff that it's only possible to have anecdotal evidence because that's all they, I mean, have time to do. You can't, perform enough studies to say does this work or does this not but it brings up a good point where are we doing like are we pursuing something whether that be like lightweight or heavyweight because we've seen somebody else do it and they be good or are we doing it because we know that will make us good. And I think there's a a slight difference in thinking there that you pointed out, but it's really important because yes, somebody might have this system and they be good, but it doesn't always mean that that's what caused them to be good. And, and, and sometimes they could have been better if they would have done something else. Would you agree to that? Yeah. I mean, it's, and that's why I said having a conversation with whoever, whether it's a team or a small group of individuals or a single individual and understanding where some of that mentality comes from. Right. And a lot of that takes trust. It takes time to build those relationships and conversations and have mm-hmm. those delicate scenarios. But I would agree that there's, there is a lot of sources of, of reason. And the other thing that you, that you could add to that list is, even just 
uh, and this is getting into more of the disorder component, right? But looking yeah. at body image, it could not even be related to athletic performance. It could be completely related to more of the psychological aspect of, of body image. Mm -hmm. And so there's really, like you said, there's those two options that you mentioned. And I would say that there's that third option there. And so again, finding out where their perception comes from, because if you don't, and you just kind of lay on information, like, you know, it's like telling people to, to eat a certain way. Well, you can tell them all day long, but until they make lifestyle changes yeah. and see the importance themselves of why they need to change their habits from a nutritional standpoint, they're not going to, and or that's not going to take hold the way it should. So it's the same thing with body composition and performance, I think, yeah. personally. So who do you think like should have this conversation with the athlete? Is it the coach? Is it the athletic trainer, um, you know, friends, peers? Cause obviously it's a difficult conversation, um, to have, but it needs to be done. Yeah. It, it's, it's something that's very difficult. And, you know, that's, that's certainly an issue that I've seen not only being a strength and conditioning coach, but also being a researcher is what do you do with this information once you have it? And, and I've found that it, it depends on the relationship that, the certain individuals that are surrounding in terms of the support staff or support system for that mm -hmm. given individual or group of individuals you need to find out who's going to be the, who do they most relate to and who's going to be the best to have that conversation. Yeah. Now in the athletic realm, commonly it should be the medical personnel or the athletic trainer, right? Okay. So the sports medicine personnel or the athletic training staff typically now, there is a caveat there because like I said earlier, males talking to female athletes, right. Is perhaps the most difficult and delicate scenario. Mm -hmm. And so even if you're a male athletic trainer and you're working with a female athlete, or if you're, you know, somebody of that, of that nature, and you have that dynamic going on, maybe you have to take a step back and say, Hey, maybe I'm not the best person to talk to this athlete about this given scenario. But again, it's, it's, highly individualized, but I would say if I had to generalize it, the default mechanism should be somebody in the medical or sports medicine or athletic training based sure. component. Um, you know, sometimes as a strength conditioning coaches tend, we think it's our place, but I would disagree that it's the, we're the best individuals all the time to do it. Now, some mm -hmm. people will argue, Hey, as a strength conditioning coach, you spend the most time at the high school or collegiate level with your athletes and yeah. even at the professional level. So you may be the person who needs to discuss this. Again, it depends on relationships, mm -hmm. but if you don't have a great relationship with individual athletes as a strength and conditioning coach, you probably aren't the best individual to, to go about that yeah. way, but it's, 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 it's a sensitive subject. So you do have to take some time and analyze what's the right. best scenario we should be able to talk, talk about this topic. Right. Yeah. And you wouldn't want to come in it like guns a blazing. I, I think you should do this. You know, it's more come, come at it inquisitive. Like, Hey, what do you think about this or feeling like that? Is that good advice or am I off the wall there? <laughs> no, I, mean, I think sometimes being a little inquisitive, but also taking it from the tact of, of health and being helpful. Right. Sure. And so that's why a lot of the medical professionals and even some universities or some high schools are engaging with sports psychologists as well. Mm -hmm. And it's not just, you know, necessarily mental state of the, of the athlete, but it's also looking at how can I communicate better with this group of athletes? And maybe that's something where you have an individual like that introduce this type of topic. Yeah. Um, but also try to get an idea is this, is this athlete or is this group of athletes receptive yeah. to this topic? Um, you know, or you just present athletes with better information. If you're not comfortable with talking about them directly, yeah. maybe you can do an end around and, and, and provide them with some information and some, some resources, and maybe they will go seek that out. Um, you, sure. you just never know what the perception is, right? You yeah. never know if, if one or two people have been 
thinking about it and just in the group setting, they're not, af- they're afraid to step out and admit something. Yeah. So it's, it's a very delicate situation. Um, but yeah, there's, there's, you certainly not talking about it is just as problematic as trying to go full yeah. steam ahead and For bullying sure. your way through it. Right. You yeah. can't just let it lie. Yeah. So if an athlete is listening to this right now and they're like, well, okay, you mentioned, you know, six areas of health that I should be assessing with myself and that being, um, let's see if I, I wrote them down, sleep, mental, um, body composition, menstrual cycle, nutrition, and movement. Um, how, how do, how would an athlete begin to even do an assessment of themselves of, okay, where am I at in these different, um, categories? Uh, where, where would you begin? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. And you know, what I love about being an athlete now and kind of jealous of all the athletes is there's so much wearable tech out there. There's so many things that you can use your phone for. You can use your Apple watch or any other wearable tech for, right? Yeah. I mean, and so as simple as tracking, you know, I mean, the Apple watch, gosh, you can bring in, you can track your heart rate throughout the entire day. You can take yeah. a look at your resting heart rate. I mean, it's one thing that I do every day is, is track, particularly with COVID is, is looking at, okay, is my resting heart rate changing? Yeah. Um, throughout the day. And I know if it is, it's getting above the average that I know mine should be what's going on question mark. Right. Um, but you know, tracking your resting heart rate is, is very good. If you have the capability to track your heart rate variability, right. That's also mm-hmm. something that's key. And then for athletes or individuals listening, the more variable your heart rate might be counterintuitive, the more variable your heart rate is throughout the day. That's actually better. Because what that shows is the system is attempting to equilibrate and try to find what's going on um, and compensate accordingly throughout the day. If you see little variation in your heart rate within the day, right, you know that that likely you've engaged in some type of stressful or stressing Mm -hmm. activity, right? And so your heart rate is likely elevated and very streamlined. Um, and that's a little bit more problematic. So that's, that's an gauge of stress, yeah. right? That's a good way. Sleep quality. Uh, and there's a lot of apps that you can use now. Um, there's a lot, obviously a lot of the wearable tech you can do that, but if you don't have any of that, just track the amount of hours that you're sleeping, right? And you'll notice a pattern. Hey, it seems like to me, I function best or perform best with seven hours of sleep. Right. If I get yeah. five or six, man, I've really my cognition, my performance is off. If I get too much, I feel groggy. Yeah. So those two things are, are key um, for sure. You know, one of the other things that you can do uh, a lot of times is is it's not again not self, although we're getting to the point where you might be able to self monitor movement. But there are a lot of things out there that you can if you're trying to do it yourself you can determine through certain movements, how well you are moving. Right. And there's going to be some self screens coming out. Hopefully soon there are some out there currently. Um, But the best thing to do is, is to have a professional do functional movement screening or some type of movement screening with you Mm -hmm. to determine how well are you moving? And you can take it on a joint by joint approach. You can take it more in a, what I like to call a global approach where you're looking at sort of a systematic um, component. Think of it like a squat, like an overhead deep squat, right? Mm -hmm. How well is everything integrated to get you in the optimal position that uh, you need to function properly? But I like the joint by joint approach because some people say, well, not everybody needs to squat. Or maybe that squat is not the best position to evaluate that individual. Okay, fine. If you go to a joint by joint approach, does your joint access all of the ranges of motion that it needs to perform the activity that you need to do? Sure. So if you and I compare ourselves, yeah, as a soccer athlete for me and a and a and a running athlete like you, your joint needs are different. Our joint needs are different. So mm-hmm. we can't compare apples to oranges, but if I compare myself to, you know, another soccer athlete, right. Yeah. I can, I can certainly determine 
if I'm limited in some capacity or not. Sure. And so I think that's a big one for me is being able to do that. Obviously, body composition is hard to do yourself, but that's certainly something that you can go. There's a lot of resources now that you can certainly determine. What about those like scales? Um, Like I know Garmin has one and that kind of stuff. Do you think they're accurate or not? It depends on the technology. And this is what I tell my students all the time is, is body composition, the measurements. Okay. So if you compare them to gold standard, for example, like a DEXA scan, right. Mm -hmm. Um, you might not be completely accurate compared to what the DEX is, but if you keep the same parameters every time that, let's say I have one upstairs that the Tanita old suit, when I was a wrestler, I still have it, right? It's okay. a Tanita with the, the electrodes on the scale. It's a single frequency BIA, biological impedance. That's what those are, just like the handheld ones, Yeah. right? And if I keep all my parameters consistent, what does that mean? If If... I exercise, if I don't exercise 24 hours beforehand, if I, if I am properly hydrated, that's a big thing for the BIA to make sure I'm not overly hydrated or dehydrated. Okay. If, um, my food consumption is consistent. If I'm a female, it's the same time in my menstrual cycle. Yeah. Right. All things like that, alcohol consumption, right is limited 24 hours, 48 hours beforehand, right? So if, if you have certain parameters, you say every time that I do this, I'm going to measure it at the same time every day or every week. Yeah. And keep the parameters the same. Whatever you're using is going to be fairly consistent. And it's going to give you a good idea of how you track over time, right? Even if it's not the best technology or the most fancy thing out there, it's going to give you a good idea of yourself compared to yourself yeah. over the course of time. But if you don't do that and you say, you know what, today I measured myself in the morning, but two weeks ago I measured myself before I went to bed or sure. I've measured myself before I exercised the other day. But this time I measured myself, you know, during the workout. I don't know. Yeah. But- yeah. So, uh, body composition we've talked a lot about that and before we get into the the closing questions what is like for men or women healthy ranges of body composition so if they are doing uh, a test whether it be you know through a scale or through a skin fold or a dexa scan um like what should they be looking for as far as healthy standards yeah so i think the biggest thing here before biggest caveat that I have to say before I get into that is people have to start acknowledging the difference between body mass index, BMI, and body fat percentage. Body mass index is simply a ratio of your weight to your height. So it's basically looking at stature and how much do you weigh for that stature. That is not body fat percentage, right? That is separate. And I hope in the healthcare field, we eventually get away from using BMI. It's a fantastic tool for population measures, but not on the individual level. So with that said, caveat, uh, body fat percentage for males, I always like to say somewhere between, you know, 12 and, and 18 to 20%, right? So right in the teens, right. Is, is a good, healthy, uh, that that'll slide just a little bit as you as you continue to age, right? For the healthy ranges, yeah. And then for females, within the twenty percent range, right? twenty mm-hmm. from twenty percent, twenty two percent to twenty nine percent, right? And, and that's that's really a good range. So you can see how there's a discrepancy between males and females. You also can't use those scales accordingly, and so. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from an essential standpoint, males need absolutely, you know, uh, at least three to 4% body fat, um, to sustain optimal health. Females are much higher than that and are at least somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 to 14%. And so you can see again, the difference is there Mm -hmm. uh, as well. So, um, making sure that you're using the proper sex or gender um, ranges is key when you're identifying where you should be at. Yeah. Um, and and that's, that's critical, but again, that's a very generalized 
scenario. And again, that's for healthy populations and also athletic populations. Cool. Thanks um, for that. So we have some closing uh, questions. So I, I, I send an email and post some things on social generally before um, I do an interview with somebody, just a, a quick background on you and who you are. Like, hey, I'm interviewing this guy. What do you want to ask him? So I have a few questions from the audience um, that they're just meant to be you know, quick. What are your thoughts on, on these um, less than 60 second answers? So um, first one is, do you think measuring your health by like stats with wearable technologies is better indicator of one health um, rather than going by feel? I think that that's a great question. I think it's a combination of both. Okay. One, I, I think we get too overwhelmed with all the information that we get information overload. And there's a reason why collegiate programs, professional programs hire uh, biostats professionals to sort through all the data, Yeah. right? And get what's essential. So sometimes too much data can be overwhelming, but I agree that there needs to be consistent collection of data. So you know where you stand, but that should be also paired with how you feel. Right. So if the data says, hey, you know, you got enough sleep, your resting heart rate is in a good range, your body composition is a good range, but you're not feeling like you're performing well or you're not optimal, then you yeah. need to figure out what stats correlate to you feeling and performing optimal. Okay. So it's a combination of the two. Yeah. So taking the stats also recording how you feel and be like, Hey, I was feeling best at these stats. Let's try to emulate those in, in the future. There's a reason why readiness questionnaires and now a lot of them are on tablets, you know, for, for, for athletes, right. They have sort of a series of, of emojis. Right. Yeah. And there's a reason why that is in there. Right. Cause they want to mm -hmm. correlate with you're saying, Hey, I'm properly hydrated today. I, I feel like I'm ready to perform by clicking on certain emojis, right? But this yeah. is these are my stats. There's certainly a reason why that that needs to be yeah. thrown in there. For sure, cool. Um, and then the other one was, um, what message do you wish that every athlete internalized when it comes to health? Well, I think I think two messages there is. Well, so I'll expand the question, but I think yeah, you're cheating. Um, yeah, I'm cheating. <laughs> you you definitely need in order to be healthy, you need you need proper movement. So what I mean by that is you can't just pull your way through mm -hmm. training just because training is the most glorious thing to do. There are some things that we aren't necessarily the most glorious things to do in order to maintain movement. Cause that's going to, in the long run, that's, what's going to benefit you. I'm, I'm a prime example, right. Uh, from, from that perspective, definitely have mm -hmm. some chronic injuries because I just said, you know what, go, 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 go. Yeah. And didn't take care of the, the machine, the body. So sure. Um, I, I think a lot of, if athletes could internalize that, in conjunction with my second point, which is making sure that rest and recovery is part of your training plan. And that includes sleep. Yeah. And that's something that I wore with a badge of honor for a long time. Oh, I got up early and, you know, I did my morning workout or I did my second workout of the day early morning. Right. Yeah. And I completely neglected the sleep that I needed for years. Yeah. Cause I didn't know any better, but I wish athletes, if I could go back and tell my former athlete self, get your sleep, make sure you recover and recharge and make sure you move. Right. Yeah. I think that that, that those are key messages. Now you're, to speak, any athlete. you're speaking my language. You, you know, this is the science of sports recovery. <laughs> See, tied it all together <laughs> yeah well that's a great way to to wrap it up thanks so much uh for being on the show kyle if somebody says hey i need to get in touch with this kyle guy or just follow along with what you have you know future publications that kind of stuff where can they get more information or reach out to you 
Well, like I said, I'm going to forward those those publications for your yep. your viewership so they can have those. But best way to contact me is is via email at klevers at gwu.edu. I'll certainly welcome anybody who wants to reach out and and have a chat. Certainly always willing to do that. And then our website for our our laboratory, our testing laboratories at George Washington is body composition dot gwu.edu and there you'll find resources in terms of what we do for testing and if you're in the sure. dc metro area ever or if you live there and you're listening to this podcast you're more than willing to always reach out to us and and stop by if you'd like to do that awesome Awesome. And I'll have links to all that in the show notes as long as well as all the other uh, resources that we talked about today. So again, Kyle, thanks so much for being on the show. It was great having you. Great time. I appreciate it, Chase. Thank you so much. All right. Episode's over. If you found value in this episode, please consider giving us a review on iTunes. And if you haven't already yet subscribed, do so now so you don't miss any important topics in the coming week. And if you have any questions or suggestions for the show, please send them my way. I am most responsive on Instagram. That's at jcheese, J-A-E, cheese, like the food, or email me directly at jace, J-A-S-E, at science of sportsrecovery.com. Talk soon.